The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Well, I'm sitting here with Harley Cadwallader. You were a pilot, a top dressing pilot? Yes. Um, Can you tell me how did you first uh, get into aviation how, what was your journey into aviation? Uh, just a general interest in aeroplanes, um, I suppose from about 14, we, there was um, about two or three miles away, as, as there was a hill from the parents' farm and they were top dressing off it with tiger moths, so we, we decided we'd go and have a closer look and uh, we forded or waded through a river climbed the top of the hill just in time to see them disappear off, so that, that, was, my, that was my first introduction to it, and uh, when I, I think I was uh, 17 when I joined the local aero club and started to learn to fly. Okay, so what year would that have been that you... Uh, yeah, 1957, so... Okay. Uh, and uh, whereabouts was your local aero club? In Marsden. Oh, yes, okay. yeah. My parents had a farm in um, uh, Waihakake and just slightly south of Carterton, so... Okay. Uh, so, uh, apart from the doctoring, was there much aviation going on around there at the time? It was... Uh, there was a reasonable amount uh, going on, not, not to the extent it got later on. Uh, basically only tiger moths. Uh, and then the old Fletcher turned, would turn up, and then Cessna 180s came along, and then Field Air came along with their beavers, and uh, Air Contracts got a few beavers, and uh, yeah, it sort of built up from there. Okay. So what did you actually learn in, at uh, Masterton Aero Club? Um, they they uh, just a basic training on a Tiger Moth. Um, circuits and landing, spinning, that sort of, I wasn't all that keen on spinning and aerobatics, so I never never did, did too much of that. And, and it was just basic training up to uh, uh, commercial pilot standards. So I got my, got my private licence, I can't remember what, day, uh, what year that was, but uh, and then I just went on from there. Okay. And uh, I did a bit of um, glider towing once I... Once uh, and that helped build up the hours. So. 
uh, I, I worked on uh, I worked on the farms, and it wasn't really high-paying wages. So I had to save up to save up to uh, do an hour's flying. Yep. So uh, it didn't really come easy. So, and it took and it seemed to take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Was your long-term goal always to go into uh, top dressing or commercial? Uh, that was the only thing that that interested me at the time. Um, I thought about joining an airliner when I was, uh, I think I was 27 at the time, and uh, that's, at that stage uh, the local in New Zealand, or was as National Airways at the time, had a cut-off date of 25, so it was too old. And every time they had a new income, they, uh, and a new intake, they'd raise the entry age a little bit, but I was always too... Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I just enjoyed top dressing, so um, I was quite happy doing what I, what I was trained to do. So. so how did you actually get into the top dressing? Um, I got a job as a as a loader driver, I yep. uh, got a job and learned how to, to um, drive the loader, fill the aeroplane up with super and uh, do all the things that loader drivers do. Uh, uh, I was getting up uh, out of bed in the morning about four o'clock in the morning but I worked on the farm so I was used to that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, no, it was good. Uh, and was that all around the Wairapa? Yeah, in the Wairapa in Marston, and I started with uh, air services. Okay. Uh, Wairapa air services, it was. Were they still on Tiger Moths at that stage? Or uh, no, they'd gone. They had a, uh, they had two aeroplanes. They had a Fletcher, uh, flown by Harry Mangum, and Neil Middlemas was, he, I, I drove the loader for Neil Middlemas, so. Yeah. Yeah. And what was he flying? Uh, he was flying a Cessna 180. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, and I, dro I drove for um, Neil, Neil, and then I went off and did... Uh, I, went, I went to the Auckland Commercial Pilot School for a start, uh, and I got all the subjects uh, met, and uh, I had to reset reset met again which I did about four times and I couldn't get my head around met and anyway in the end I wrote a letter to civil aviation and asked them uh, well, I was getting 60 was a pass and 55 I was seemed to be getting 55 all the time so I rang them and oh, I wrote a letter to them rather and, and asked them what I was doing wrong and they said well what you're doing wrong is he doing the anti-cyclone drawing in the in the sketch they get you to draw, I was drawing drawing the anticyclones the wrong way. Oh, they were going going the wrong way, and that became about because the only books that were available on on um, meteorology at the time was the Canadian Air Force book. And it's in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, uh, once, once, uh, <coughs> once I knew what I was doing wrong, I passed it and went through, yeah. yeah. Mm. And uh, did you go then back to the same company when you...? Yes, went back driving the loader again, and then, uh, then uh, a bit later on they sent me to... Uh, once I got my commercial licence, they sent me to... I got my, did the flight test for my commercial pilot licence on a Friday and next Monday I was off to Beric Dalcombe's Agricultural Pilot School. So, oh, right. so I spent two months there and um, then came back and started flying with air services. Okay. Tell me about the school. Was that quite exhilarating flying? Uh, no, it was all training. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite hard. Yeah. Uh, Beric was an excellent, uh, an excellent instructor, but he didn't suffer fools gladly. Right. Uh, uh, but anyway, we got on all right, and uh, uh, it was uh, yeah, taught taught us a lot. He taught, he, so we learnt the basics, 
and uh, he he mainly told us taught us how not to get into trouble very much. Uh, yeah. So and then then you each job was from then on each job was different and each job we learned a bit yeah. more from it. Yeah. Uh, I did. After I came off the ag school, I went to I uh, Neil 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 Middlemas had got a new loader driver, so but I used to go out with him and he'd let me fly the Viva a bit. So I'd, occasionally I'd uh, he'd let me do an hour and then he'd get back into it and carry on. Yeah, so I started really started with top dressing off on a Viva, so which was uh, yeah a bit of a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that like, uh, getting into the beaver and top dressing? Uh, was it, you know... A bit scary for a start. <laughs> yes. It was a big aircraft. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so quite a simple aeroplane really, but uh, yeah, they were, they were relatively easy to fly and the longer I flew them, the the easier they seemed to get, uh, and they were just—they didn't have met too many vices, um, and they were excellent. They handled the farm strips. Oh, well. great! Yeah, great. Yeah, because they're designed for bush planes, weren't they, in Canada? So yes, yes, used to that sort of thing. But when they're fully loaded, were, were they quite a heavy aircraft on the controls? No. Okay. No, because they had a, a wheel too, which was better. But you only flew. It he had one hand on throttles and flaps and things like that. Yeah. Um, so he generally flew it one-handed. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was... No, uh, oh, they were easy. They, they seemed to be a bit noisy when I started. Uh, and as I got deafer, they got better, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they... Um, uh, Crash helmets in those days weren't very, very soundproof, and it was only sort of later on when I got rid of the helmet and and just flew with a big cap and a decent pair of earmuffs that it was it became better. Okay. But, yeah. uh, uh, but most most of them either did that a big cap and earmuffs or had a helmet on, but yeah. Uh, and and they were all right too, and they they certainly saved the odd pilot, and uh, but they were just a nuisance. They're sweaty, they were hot, and heavy, and yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you started off top dressing in the Beaver there, yeah. um, and where did you progress to? And then went, and then uh, I got a Pawnee. Okay. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, I broke that after a little while, uh, which taught me a lesson. One thing is, is uh, um, I, uh, the one thing that it did teach me is never let yourself get talked into something you don't want to do. Yeah. And I had arrived on the sea strip and uh, to start the job, and I thought it was too windy. And uh, anyway, I mentioned it to the farmer that I thought it was too windy, and he said, "Oh no, we've." Load in far worse than this, so I only got the one load done, and I, I um, uh, was sort of after I'd taken off with the load, so the load I was committed to a tailwind landing, and uh, it didn't end up so well. Did an overshoot that never quite worked. Yeah, so um, that took me taught me another lesson as. Um, the main one, of course, don't let yourself get talked into something you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah makes sense. So, uh, yeah, from then I got, oh, I got a call here that's the, the next, and uh, me and the company parted ways when I got to the stage I just didn't want to fly it anymore. And uh, I got put off uh, put off over the winter time, and they said I was going to get a new aeroplane after another aeroplane after the winter. And uh, when the aeroplane arrived, they gave it to somebody else. So I asked, uh, I happened to be lucky enough to be walking past 
Fieldier's office when uh, I stuck my head in the door and, and they said, uh, I, I said, any jobs going at your place? They said, as a matter of fact, there is. And that's how I started with Fieldair and started with Fieldair on 1st of April 1967. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and is that still at uh, Masterton based? Uh, you're based in Masterton, yep. yes. Yeah, so and I started off there and I. Uh, what happened? I worked there for a while. Uh, I had a bit of a, well, it wasn't a mental problem. I, I had a quite a good friend was killed top dressing, and I sort of, sort of started to think about where where this was all leading to, and what would you know what would happen, and uh, uh, things went a wee bit quiet in the industry, and I thought I'd go and. Uh, my father was looking for somebody else to go back on the farm, so I thought, oh, well, I'll try farming for a while. But that, uh, I think that lasted about uh, four months or five months. And I rejoined Field Air and came to Gisborne, went to, uh, sorry, not Gisborne, um, Napier. Okay. So that was, we went to Napier in 73 and we've been there ever since. Okay. So you missed the flying too much, you wanted to go back? Uh, that was the main thing, yeah. And Ann, I miss the people. There's some really nice people uh, associated with, especially agricultural aviation, because they're the only, really, really the only ones that I had, you know, much to do with. Uh, we never ran into airline pilots or things like that. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. So, uh, how many um, aircraft were based at Napier for your company? Two, basically. But there, uh, there was a bit. Marston was quite a big base uh, in those days, and I think there was either twelve or thirteen aeroplanes, wow. top dressing base there at one stage. Now they're down to, I think they've got two Crescos there. Mm. That's that's all there is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's. Uh, the whole industry's really, really changed, and we we think we were lucky that we had the best of. I um, mean, you could just about get a job anywhere you wanted to go in in, in the in the country, yeah. and um, yeah. So I um, I stayed with Field Air and um, got promoted to uh, on the DC three later on. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, what happened then? Uh, I was uh, the aeroplane I flew was the uh, CMU, which is uh, one of the nicer ones. Field Air had bought that new. Some of the earlier ones, that, that although they'd bought them new, by the time I was there, they were getting quite old. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I had CMU, and I uh, I took CMU to Gisborne to for an inspection. And when you went up there, it was nothing to do but just hang around the hangar, and it took a generally took a a, a full day to to do an inspection. And uh, I was uh, one of the drivers came and asked me if I'd like to go into town to have a walk around in town. So it's better than walking around in town's better than s s sitting out at the aerodrome. So. I was about to go and get in his car when the chief pilot, who was John Riddell, came along and says, hey, he says, I'm just going to test fly uh, BFN. Uh, he said, do you want to come for a ride? So I thought, oh yeah, I'll go for a ride in an aeroplane any day. So we jumped and uh, got in the aeroplane. Uh, John was flying, I was, only in, I was in the passenger seat. And uh, anyway, we were... We um, he did all the checks, all the uh, all the checks. Ran the airplane up, uh, taxi down on the runway, and took off into wind, which was which was uh, the thing that that I believe saved us. We were in a, into about a fifteen to twenty knot northwesterly, and a bit of turbulence picked up one wing, and because we went to correct it to keep the. And, and the ailerons, uh, the ailerons had been hooked up wrong. They were backwards. Oh, wow. Yes, and it was sort of, yeah. But I, I mean, I was looking at the window, and I sort of didn't think there was anything wrong. I mean, there was always a um, 
something to look at if you're a passenger. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the next thing we're in a, a broken broken aeroplane, and I had a head injury which kept me out of flying for about three or four months. Uh, and then uh, when I passed the medicals again, I just started again back in Masterton. Um, so uh, yeah, that was uh, a bit, a bit, a, a bit unfortunate. I mean, the aeroplane had just come off overhaul, and it was beautifully painted. And, yeah. So it was a shame that John got, uh, John got, I got a hit on the side of the head, and and, um, and uh, John got his back hurt. He hurt his back, and uh, he went to work about a week later, I believe and then couldn't get out of the aeroplane, so they, he, he could fly it back to Napier, uh, back to Gisborne rather, and he never flew again, and he retired from top dressing, so, yeah. He was an ex-fire pilot, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, I he talking he to was, him. and uh, started top dressing in the Tiger Moth days with a partner in Gisborne, so, and Field Air bought him out when, uh, when Field Air started to expand, so. Yeah, nice man. He yeah. really was. Yeah. yeah. That was a shame, but anyway, sort of that was the end of his fl uh, flying career, and I, uh, I stayed on with Fieldy. I, th I think I was off work for about four months. Um, yeah, so it took a little bit of getting back into it, yeah. but uh, Fieldy treated me well. Um, I think I treated Fieldy well. I, I was always. Uh, um, Always um, re ready for work, and uh, yes. Yeah. So. Were they a good company in general? To Field Air was. I uh, just you just can't fault them. I couldn't fault them anyway. I loved working for them. Yeah. Um, the DC3 was a good job. That was um, that was it, with a couple of three young children. Uh, it, I was easily contactable. Where uh, with with the light aeroplanes, when you're away all day, there's the only way you could get a message to anybody was go through the office, which you couldn't always talk out on on radios. Yep. DC three, of course, we we're back at the aerodrome every every half hour. So if somebody if somebody wanted to leave me a message, it was there was always someone there to answer the telephone. Yep. So that was a lot easier. And then. Um, uh, that's when, uh, yeah, when I lost my licence. I got out of bed one morning and ricocheted down the hallway going to the, going to the bathroom. And uh, anyway, I uh, thought, oh, just a wee bit giddy, that's about all. Oh, that's, that's sort of nothing. And I went to work, I carted one load and gave myself a hell of a fright. I managed to get the load sewn and uh, and uh, I came back and parked the aeroplane and went to the doctor and sort of that was the end of it. Yeah. Uh, and I had, uh, they, it was diagnosed as non-positional vertigo and uh, yeah, caused by a hit on the head. So. Oh, right, from the yeah. crush. Yeah. So I, I um, lost my licence and did a few various things and uh, I think it took me about three years, was it about three years, Julia? About three years to get it back, doing various things and going to the hospitals and doing all sorts of tests, things like that. Uh, yeah, so uh, I've, I've, I uh, finally got it back and uh, there was, there was um, a bit of a downturn in the industry and pilots were going overseas and so I, I actually went to um, I went to Libya and trained pilots for ag pilots for Colonel Gaddafi wow. and uh, so that, that was three months so I was uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to think of anything good to say about Arab pilots <laughs> yes, yes, without being cruel. Uh, so I did three months there and came home, and then by the time I sort of settled at home, I, I did uh, 
uh, sometimes worked as a builder's labourer, just off and on when he needed me. And then uh, Field Air offered me a job as operations manager in Dargaville, and I went there for three years. Three years. Three, three years. Then it all, and that that was the start of the really big downturn in in top dressing. And uh, um, I'd learnt a little bit about the building from the being a builder's labourer, and I. Uh, we bought a section on the beach at Napier, and I, I built a built a. Uh, we built our first house there. We did it. The first one we built it wasn't our first house, but while well, it was while I was building the house that I got offered a job in Sudan. So um, I left Juliet and the kids at home in a half-finished house and went to Sudan for five months. <laughs> Well, can I, can I just take you back before we get on to Sudan? Yeah. How did you end up in Libya? How did that come about for a start? Uh, I had some friends who were they were going to they were going to uh, they went to the company that they were with went to Egypt and they'd fly in Egypt for two months and then they'd go down to Sudan and uh, take the machines down to Sudan and. Uh, and uh, do the Sudanese season, and I'd written a letter to them, and, or the, they'd rang me up for a start. They says, "Come on over, it's great." And uh, anyway, the the uh, boss of the of the company that worked for the, the I, I can't remember the name of the company now, but they also had other contracts somewhere. And uh, one of them was Panama, uh, spraying bananas in Panama. Well, that, I did all the all the research into that, and then it fell through because we couldn't. They couldn't get me work work permits. And anyway, um, they said uh, because I had two instructor ratings, uh, they said was I interested in going to uh, Libya? They'd got a contract to train Libyan spray pilots. And was interested. Asked if I was interested to uh, go and do that. So that's how I got to to, to Libya. So I trained. I think I had uh, there was eight, but uh, I I sort of came to the conclusion really that third world countries. Anybody who's got interest an interest in third world country is an, a, a quite rich people. So they're not interested in working. They were interested in playing around, flying low, um, uh, but they weren't interested in getting out of bed at four o'clock in the morning to go and spray wheat or spray whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I, um, I, I, uh, I did what I could could with these uh, these blokes. There was eight of them. None of them would ever actually ever spray anything. Uh, most of them would end up in an airline, you know. If there was an, if you're working off the, um, off the training off the main airport at Seba, where which is way the hell down in the middle of the desert, they'd um, they'd be more interested in the 707 that was taxiing or landing or yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, I came away from there. I think I taught them enough to, if they ever went spraying, to. to Keep them alive, but that's about all you could teach them. Yeah, so must have been quite a strange country after New Zealand. Oh, it was a very uh, uh, culture, big culture shock. Yeah. Uh, um, but anyway, I was uh, I came home and uh, I drove a loader for James Aviation for a while. Um, this was that's but that was in Napier, yeah. and then. Um, Field Air offered me a job area manager for, for or operations manager rather for uh, Field Air in Dargaville. And Dargaville needed <coughs> one and a half pilots there, so I was going to be the half pilot. So I was doing the organising and uh, giving the other pilot a handout when he needed one. Yep. And uh, uh, so uh, yeah, I did that until. Uh, uh, how long were we up there? Two years there. 
two two years. Uh, t two years and the real downturn came and uh, I was just made redundant. So I had a contract with Field Air to, uh, if anything fell through with the, dr the job in Dargaville, they'd send my furniture to anywhere I wanted to go in New Zealand. Okay. So we came back to Napier. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Sudan was, Sudan was brilliant. It was um, just uh, the, uh, sprayed cotton. There was uh, five of us. Five of us, five New Zealanders and a uh, and a, uh, an Egyptian. Uh, and they were five months at this time. We we had a cook and a houseboy and all that sort of thing. But it was really nothing much to do. You could play cards or um, if you weren't working. Uh, you said there were five Kiwis. Uh, who were all the Kiwis? Uh, there was myself, Marty Herbert, uh, Jim Frogley, uh, Dave. Uh, Dave Ashworth and one other I've never I've never I knew him before but I can't remember what his name was and did, did, did you fly there with Max Lacey that was in there? No, oh yeah Max Lacey Max Lacey came down later on okay. uh, came down later on with the BBC film crew yeah yeah he was there at the time but so and then uh, they were, they were with us for a week, or Max was with us for a week, and uh, yes, it wasn't. Sorry, <laughs> it, um, what the film was a uh, not quite how it went really. Um, well, tell me how it really went because it, that's it's an interesting thing. I it, as as a kid, my dad had that on video, and I used to watch that. Oh yeah, but Into Africa, it's called. Yes, Into Africa. Yeah. They, uh, Andrea, Andrea wrote to BBC and they sent her a copy. Oh, right. Yeah, which I've lost somewhere. I can't <laughs> find it. <laughs> um, it was. It was all. It was all show, and the bit that Max does, and it's no reflection on Max. Max was really BS. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was. You know how he'd been. There. I showed him in the shower after doing eight hours spraying, and, and you know, I mean, it, it was—it never happened. It sort of never happened like that. Right. And the only thing it uh, showed Max water skiing. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we did a bit of that too. So um, I think Ryan's got a photo of the gun there. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. That was just a release of the take, take away the boredom, but it was the work was great. It was it really was. But you, you're working with uh, the Arab people, and I don't think they're very nice people. But uh, uh, if you're working near a school or a, near a village, all the kids would come out and they'd get into the crops, and the mothers would let them go and get spray all over them because it killed the killed the bugs. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and if they were if they were bigger kids, they'd they'd throw stones at you yeah, while you're, while you're working. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, yes, but that's the only play thing we did. We played cards and yeah. uh, and listened to the radio. Uh, what was the crop? Did you say it was cotton? That it was cotton. Yeah, yeah, all cotton. We had a we had a little funny little episode one day. And pe people who don't like sprays would think it was horrible. We were spraying uh, when we first went there. We were using um, Micronair. Uh, they were all we were all using Micronair. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, all the time. They, you know, they have you ever seen a Micronair? Oh, it's a it's a propeller about that big, and it's and it's driven by power. That's right, it's power, and it it makes um, the spray come out like an aerosol. Oh, yes. But that spray, you know, that's the droplet size. Yep. That's the droplet size. And uh, anyway, we were spraying this stuff one day, and then we just we uh, there was a hell of a lot of mosquitoes about. So we said, all right. Got to do something about the mosquitoes. This is the last one at night. We'll spray the village. 
was right there, and and, uh, uh, and we were in a big compound, and it was. I suppose there'd be about 500 people in the, uh, that were in the village and sort of around us. So anyway, I came home, oh, and I'm the first one home. And I thought, no, oh, there was one aeroplane home. One aeroplane was back. So I thought, oh, I've got a bit of spray left. So I went, sprayed the village, yep, with this stuff. And then... <laughs> And then the next aeroplane came back and they thought, oh, the others can't be. Because the village was a bit far away from the strip where we kept the aeroplanes. Oh, well, I must be the last one home. So it turned out that five of us sprayed it. (laughs) It certainly killed all the... certainly killed all the uh, mosquitoes. Fortunately, it didn't kill anything else, but there was some very drunk donkeys walking around the next day and the, and the funniest thing is, is if, if you went up town there was some, uh, some chickens you go with the chicken and they'd all fall over <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yes. Yes. so it turned out that five of us sprayed the we sprayed it five times <laughs> so we're very careful after that because we just allotted one to spray the village but we didn't have to do it for about another two months of course before the mosquitoes came back in a remote place like that um who was looking after the maintenance of the aircraft oh they had they they had engineers one one of the engineers had been uh i know two of them two of them had, had worked for air india okay yeah so we i mean we were a wee bit lucky that i mean no, we didn't need much. Um, uh, and, uh, we didn't need an engineer. I got a hole in the wing, in the wingtip. Uh, on the last day I was there, on the first trip, I got a, a kid threw a stone and it went just left a hole about that big in the in the leading edge. So I told them about that and filled out the form to have. Oh yeah, oh when you come back next year, Captain, it'll it'll, it'll be fixed. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> And we just we just got a bit of speed tape and blocked the hole up and just carried on. Yeah. When they had no way of repairing it really, so. But they kept everything going. They did. Um, if we if we were changing the sprays, they did. Uh, there was two of them, and uh, they'd do all that for us. So we didn't have to d- really do anything yeah. ourselves. So, um, you know, and they tidied up the brakes, and if you. Had weak brakes or leaking brakes, they could certainly do that, but I mean you wouldn't want them to overhaul the aeroplane, but yeah. Yeah. So what were the aeroplanes you were flying? They were Huskies. Huskies. Cessna Huskies. Yeah, I thought it was a Cessna. Yeah, they operated them here. They had they had them. Rural Aviation bought them in originally and then sold them, you know, different companies bought them. Um, but they were, they were quite good over there, quite nice to fly, um, yeah. And the uh, Sudan was good because it was, I mean, the work was easy. Every every paddock, every field was, a, they, they referred to them as numbers and they, and they were all a hundred acres and they were 300, they were nearly a kilometre, a mile long, they were a mile long. And I can't remember two hundred meters wide or something like that. And you could do them in five runs, and you could space your run out five, five, and that, and that was the correct amount to, to do, which which was quite so as long as you got the number of runs you did. But there'd be when it was there'd be a number here, and they called them numbers because they everyone had one, and they, they each nut each. Hundred acre block was was a number they called it, and they'd be there in a little canal, and then the next one, and, and if you're lucky enough, you could get four or five in a row. Yeah. So and so just go, and then go back and get another load, put that, um, and and that sort of worked out well. Sometimes you'd get you'd get uh, uh, the farmer that owned the next hundred acres probably never wanted to didn't want to put the cotton in, so he'd grow corn. So you might have to miss that. Uh, 
and then he'd, uh, then you'd get one that only had half a block of, of cotton and the rest would be vegetables and things okay. like that. So, um, so all we sprayed was the cotton. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, all the government, that's all the government uh, would allow to spray. But, uh, yeah, I suppose it was, a, it was the last great spraying that I, well, that I saw anyway. Uh, going back, going back to when I went to Libya, the spraying there was all in circles. Right. What happened is, okay, this this the the big plantation we were on. There was thirty. They had thirty wells in a row, dunk, yep. dunk, dunk, and they were all about a mile apart. There was, uh, yeah, there was. 30 down that way and 30 this way. Oh, and it wouldn't be that far. It would be 10, 10 miles. Uh, <coughs> and they were, they were, they put a well down and then just run an irrigator off it. So oh, uh, it, each one was a circle. Yeah. And it was quite unique that um, they'd start and like, say this is the start of the season, the first one, they'd plough it. Then this guy would go and plough the next one, yeah. and then somebody would come along and disc this up, and then he'd move to that one, to that one, and then they'd plant the wheat. Uh, the wheat it was wheat they were, so they'd plant the wheat, yeah. and then they'd move on to the next one. Right. By the meantime, that one's finished that row, and he's coming back ploughing all this. Right. Now the, the idea of it was so that every when when the wheat grew, when the wheat grew, when the wheat grew tall enough um, to ripen it, they just cut the water off. Hey, okay. yeah. so they cut the water off here, and then a week later, that that, that wheat would be dry enough and ripe enough to harvest. Yeah. So that would harvest, and they'd cut the water off that one. So the whole system of circles. Each one was doing something different. Okay, when we got to the harvesting the wheat, we got the harvesting of the wheat. Now, so the locals would come in and take what stalks that they could get to thatch huts and things for animals and things like that. And then, and then the ploughing would come in. They'd come in and start it all over again. Okay. Yeah, and so the whole system was, it was a big ecosystem that was no, no rain. No rain, just it was all irrigation. But there was, I don't know how many people there would. I, I suppose the village, the village that uh, was there was about five thousand people. Okay. And they all got work in the thing. Yeah, but they were. It was quite unique that it was all. And if you look in the, I used to know the coordinates, so I could just get onto Google and go. And you could see all the circles that were still there. Yeah. So they're still doing it. Yeah, they're still doing it that way. Yeah. Obviously works then. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, and, and uh, I thought I don't I don't know where it was, I don't know where it was um, first invented, uh, but they all had uh, American track. They were all American tractors. They were all irrigated. Um, not irrigated. They were. Um, Air conditioned. Oh, yes. Had all air conditioning and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was uh, quite unique. But that that grew food, mm. okay. and then the main cotton, where where the cotton was, um, in Sudan, was they grew cotton one that went in a four yearly rotation. So of a hundred acres, they put cotton in it this year. Next year it'll have vegetables of some kind, uh, or uh, or and then the next year it would have dura, which is uh, sorghum. Mm. So they mix saw they they ate sorghum every day, okay. and but it's a funny old thing. They make a porridge out of it, and then they flavour it with different things. So, uh, what have we got today? Oh, we've got plenty of tomatoes, so we'll flavour it with tomatoes. So it would be porridge flavoured with this tomatoes or onions or something that they had. Yeah, and it was quite, uh, um, and then, but they grew, oh, ground nuts was the other thing they grew, uh, peanuts. Yep, yep. They grew peanuts. Uh, we didn't spray that. We were in Sudan. We only sprayed the wheat. 
and the and the rest of it was uh, well, it didn't need spraying. And the difference between Libya and and Sudan, Sudan was all all flood irrigation. Okay. Yeah, where Libya was spray irrigation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, Libya only used Libya only used all the stuff they grew was only it uh, was to feed Libyans. Right. Yep. Yeah, they didn't. No the only thing you could export out of Libya was oil. Uh, That's yep. the only thing. Yep. Yeah. So. Um, but I, I, I was, um, uh, the main base was Seba, which is right in the middle of, it's 500 miles into the, into the, into the desert. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, and it was an oasis town, that's how the, it got to be there. There was a, about a lake of about oh, three or four acres. Uh, but there, there was so much water there, they used to have to pump the, when they, when they built a house, thing, normally they're two or three stories. Yeah. They got to put the foundation down. They got to pump water out of the foundation so to get the concrete to set. Wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was. But what they'd also done, and that that actually changing the climate because they were planting trees, a lot of a lot of eucalypts and pine trees of all things. Okay. But what it's doing is, you know, they've got these. Villages out in the desert, made of made of cow dung bricks. You, you ne never see a um, a shower rain for ten years. Yeah. Um, it's uh, now getting quite heavy rain at times, and the and the bricks are collapsing. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, yeah, it, um, it's not a place you'd want to go for a, uh, as a tourist. Um, we met some. We met some English school teachers there, uh, and they were in. Uh, uh, that was in that was in uh, Sudan, but uh, uh, there was a husband and wife team and one other female school teacher. Well, they had a terrible time, you know. I mean, they get on the bus, so anybody's uh, sort of thing. They get pinched and prodded and touched and yeah, awful. Um, yeah, so, um, and I did, I did two seasons there, and, and that five months at a time. The last, the last season, we we, uh, we ran out of fuel, and we never flew for the last six weeks because there was just no, we couldn't get petrol. In fact, to get to uh, Khartoum, which is a three-hour drive, and and they were driving, they had no petrol there, so we drained every every little ounce of. Petrol we could get out of there. They had five, five Cessna Huskies there, so we drained all, every ounce of fuel that we could get out of them to get enough fuel to get to get us to uh, Khartoum. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and then I came back and uh, I I don't know whether to go go back to Sudan or not, and they wouldn't give us any um, any guarantee that. We, that they were going to pay us for a start, and uh, I got a job. Uh, I went to Australia and did an Australian license, and I I I did two seasons top dressing. And Australia is very seasonal. Not like in New Zealand, we had it was a twelve-month job. And in Australia, it was only about a four-month job, but you're also itinerant. You went, you might be working, and and you might be working 400 miles away a week later. Yeah. So you couldn't. But anyway, I had I had the one of the few jobs where you're in a fixed base, and I was at Crookwell. So I did I did finish that season. And then came back and I think carried on building the house when I got home, and then went back again and did another season, and, and, and at Crookwell, and then uh, they were doing less. The, the top dressing in Australia was worse than here because it just 
you got tons of work one day and nothing the next. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I was asked if I wanted to, if I was interested in doing a firefighting course. Okay. And they had uh, the, the company had just taken delivery of a uh, Polish. Um, it was a drometer, uh, 960 horsepower. It was a big, it was a big beast. Um, and so I did all the training. I did all the training for that. And uh, that season, Sydney was on fire, and Victoria was on fire. And I said to the boss, "Why aren't we? Why aren't we what are we doing sitting here?" And he had get the contract he had. He had to look at Crookwell, and we had to look after Canberra and a big circle right around it. And yeah, we weren't allowed to go anywhere else. So, so I spent three months kicking a stone around Crookwell Aerodrome, where wore a brand new pair of boots out, <laughs> <laughs> and then came home. And uh, and then the guy got a call a bit later on from him to say, "Oh well." Next year we'll be paid differently. He said, I don't know how much we're going to be able to pay you, but he said, you will be paid handsomely. <laughs> handsomely, yes. You can't live on handsomely. <laughs> so I didn't go, and I was... Um, uh, uh, by that stage, I'd... Juliet had... Juliet, uh, she she was were, had working, and her her job had gone down from five days a week to three days a week or two days a week, and the same thing had happened to me. I'd come back from over there and nothing to do, so we bought a motel, okay. and we had my operated a motel for for five years, and in the meantime, Ken Johnson from Johnson Air Service and Hastings rang me and asked me if I still had a New Zealand license and would I be able would I be interested in doing uh, working for him so I was I was on call there so I worked in the motel and when I wasn't working in the motel I'd go and fly for Ken so uh, yeah then it got to the stage where I thought of oh, I think I've really had enough of this and anyway Ken um, Ken's son just got his commercial license, and somebody else, somebody else had done his ag training. I still had a, I still had a instructor's rating, so uh, he did the initial training, and then he came out with us, and I'd, he'd sit in with me for a while, and we'd plan jobs and do all what, what we do then. Then I'd let him drive, and I'd sat in the right-hand seat, and uh, so I really finished off his training. So when he was good enough to go on his own, I called it quits. Yep. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It was a built a car. Oh, I built. Oh, yeah, we, I bought a Piper car, and it was in um, been stored for a number of years. And uh, restored that with help from a few friends, and uh, and uh, got that going. And then by that time, sanity prevailed, and I looked at <laughs> how much a um, on a retirement uh, income, how uh, how I was going to afford to fly a Piper Cup as well. So uh, we end up by selling it. Okay. I sort of kicked myself really that we sold it, but. Uh, yeah. you do these things Absolutely. and it was sort of the, really the end of my, my uh, um, flying career I'd, I, I'd turned 62 so uh, that was old and, uh, long enough for me so once I said I wouldn't, wasn't going to top dress anymore and we then sold the motel and had to have something to do so I worked for a servo for the next 10 years so I worked for him until I was 72, so. Okay. Mm. But flying was the best. It, was, it, it really was a good job, yeah. And I loved working for Field Air, yeah. So other than the beaver crash where you were a passenger, did you have any other accidents, Dr. The Pawnee was one. Oh, and awesome. I, oh yeah, the Pawnee was one. And um, yeah, I, I, I um, went through a fence with a, with a Fletcher for 
Ken Johnson. Okay. <coughs> and and uh, uh, we'd started a new job. We, we started a new job, and I always picked a spot on an airstrip which I had to be airborne by. And uh, I, um, I picked a spot, and I, I, we started off on a light load. It was 1800 weight, I think, put 1800 weight on. And I went down the airstrip and became airborne at that. But I didn't, the airplane wasn't going very far. It was just uh, very high. So when I came back, I dropped it down at 100 weight, went down 100 weight, took off again. And I, and I think I forgot where the hell I was, and I went past the spot that I'd picked that I had to be off the ground for, and of course, just went through the fence. Yeah, uh, and that and that was really the wake up call. And oh, shit, if you can if you can forget a simple thing like that, yeah, you, you're going to forget more serious things later on. So, I never went back flying after that. So, I had a, I had a, I I had a very enjoyable working life, and loved what I was doing. Occasionally, you get hosed off with it. I think, oh yeah, I'm going to look for something else. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So it wasn't until I was about 50 odd, 52, uh, 62. I was, I, was, I was, did the last top dressing job when I was 62. Right. Yeah. Uh, and because of my head injury that I'd had, uh, department were always wanting me to do extra tests and things like yeah. that and I had a guts full of that too so I thought when I got to 62 that was enough. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Uh, one yeah. last question, um, have you got a favourite of the aircraft that you've Beaver. Beaver, yeah. yeah. Yes, I enjoyed them all uh, but the Beaver I really didn't like that. DC-3 was good but hey it's a big aeroplane and uh, it's a really lonely place when you're up there by yourself and something goes wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, just, yeah, I, I got a fire on board in the DC-3 at Derville Island. Oh. I was top dressing Derville Island and I, the aeroplane had just come off overhaul and I just started sewing the load and I thought, it smells like smoke and I looked around like that and the cabin next door was just chock-a-block full of smoke. God. Hit the button, dumped the load, and headed for. You now I was sort of right in a real quandary. I didn't know whether to go to Nelson yeah. or back to back to um, Woodburn, and they were sort of both about the same, except I could see Nelson, um, and I thought, oh, oh no, I, I know I'd never had any maps for Nelson. I didn't have. Um, Oh, well, it would be easy enough to, to find a radio frequency. So uh, I headed back to, to Woodburn, and because the smoke was... and I, So I knew it was electrical fire, so I, I turned everything off, turned all the and engines still ran, everything. I didn't have fuel gauges or anything like that because it turned it off. And uh, well, what the hell do I do? And uh, And... Uh, so I got right down on the water about 300 feet and I thought that really catches fire and it does say I'm going to close the throttle and just put it on the water and climb out over the top. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I followed, I worked and I had to sort of zigzag a bit. A couple of times I climbed over a headland that was there just there. Yeah. And then when I got to Havelock, uh, Havelock was a bit of a dead spot where uh, where... Uh, there was no radio signal, especially if you were down low. If I was top dressing around there, you couldn't hear the tower and they couldn't hear you. Yeah. So I waited till I got out into the open and then I turned, I turned the master switch on again, uh, started, got the radio going, told them what had happened. I thought, I thought I've got a fire on board and I've got smoke in the cockpit and I'm going to turn the and I knew which way I'd taken off, yeah. so I said, I'm going to land on... Uh, I don't know whether I told them I was going to land there or they told me to, but anyway, they just said, clear to land, turn your, turn your, turn your switches off again. So yeah. I, I turned all the electrics off again, 
and uh, went and landed. By that time, I had two fire engines and really standing out on the end of the runway. It was a bit exciting, but a bit, but a bit nerve-wracking. Oh, say. And it was a, as the um, when they when they had just come off overhaul and a fuse box. The fuse box was on, there's a wall behind the two seats, and behind the co-pilot seats in the next compartment is a big fuse box. And the, a wire on the live side had jumped, had, had, had jiggled loose with it, and, a, and its wire was, <coughs> and it's touching things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so. So, but it took it took uh, it took quite a long time for it to um, get the the smell. You know, you'd be flying along, really not a care in the world, beautiful day like this, and and all of a sudden, I could smell that smoke again. You know, well, how much of it was imagination? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I was down there for about. How long was I down there? For about four months. Four months. Yeah, I'd have to. If I had my logbooks here, I could tell you when. The, yeah, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite a nice place to to work from, and uh, yeah, I found a crash the airplane. They asked, they asked me to. Um, they'd had a report that an airplane had crashed, and I wasn't all that very far away. And they asked me if I'd go and have a look and see what what I thought. Well, I had to tell I had to tell them that I, I don't didn't think there was any chance of survival in the fire and. Her plane had caught fire, so yeah, the young bloke had just got killed. So a bit upsetting for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's about it, really. Yeah. Oh well, thank you very much. No, that's all right. Hope you got. Uh, hope you got enough to do what you want to do. So I'm sure I have. Yeah. yeah. No, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>